take your hymnal again and turn to hymn number 259. There is a fountain. As you find your place, we'll stand one more time before Pastor comes. We'll sing the first, the third, and the last of 259. turn back to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9 this morning. And in our passage today, the Lord Jesus reveals to his disciples for the second time his impending death and resurrection. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of men and be killed, but he will be raised the third day. Now it's easy for us today to understand this truth as we look back from our side of the cross. We have the completed record of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and all the consequent revelation of Scripture that followed it. And today we commemorate what the Lord Jesus did to save us from our sins. But the disciples did not have our vantage point. 
They could not comprehend this teaching because it went against their perception of what their Messiah was supposed to do and to be like. Once again, they're puzzled and they are afraid to ask him about the meaning of his statement, perhaps because it would go against their preconceived notions. Now, following the previous pattern, Jesus teaches the disciples more truth about what it means to be one of his disciples. After that first announcement, he told them that if a person was going to truly follow him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, lose his life for the sake of Christ, and not be ashamed of him. And now Jesus explains more about what what discipleship is all about. As they passed through Galilee on their way to Jerusalem and the cross, the disciples are ironically talking about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, rather than pondering what Jesus meant about being killed and being raised up. Jesus illustrates then through a child that a disciple is characterized by humble service that values others. And this is what makes them great in his eyes. Then John tells Jesus that they had rebuked someone outside of their group for casting out demons in his name. And Jesus responded by informing them that a disciple is characterized by non-sectarian attitudes. They don't make rash or harsh judgments without all the facts. From that point, Jesus goes on to demonstrate that a disciple is characterized by radical separation from sinful behavior. He does not cause others to fall into sin, and he keeps himself pure and holy. And finally, Jesus uses the figure of salt to demonstrate dedication to Christ that results in purity and peace. And these are marks of true discipleship that should be seen in us today. So let's consider them as we come before the Lord's table and begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for your word, its clarity, and its description of what you expect of us as your people. We're thankful, Lord, that because Jesus went to the cross and died and gave his life there for him, we're able to follow him in discipleship. We're able to be like him. And as we study these different uh, aspects of that discipleship, help us, Lord, to examine ourselves as we come before your table. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, first of all, this morning, we find here that a true disciple is characterized by humble service that values others. And the disciples, as they're going on their way and having this discussion, seem to be motivated by selfish ambition about who's going to be the greatest. Now, isn't that kind of ironic? Jesus has once again revealed for the second time that he's able to, he's going to be suffering. Uh, he's going to be turned over to the hands of men. He's going to be reviled. He's going to be mistreated. And eventually he's going to be crucified. He's going to bear his cross, which will result in salvation from the penalty and power of sin. And instead of trying to think about these truths and grasp them in their minds, they're talking about an entirely different 
uh, subject. They're disputing, they're arguing about who will be the greatest, just the opposite of what Jesus had been trying to teach them. Now, their discussion was likely initiated because Peter and James and John were able to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord, and then also maybe that the other disciples failed to cast out a demon. And everyone's making their case for who will be the greatest, and I'm sure that these three were probably thinking they were the candidates. We'll see a little bit later that James and John come to the Lord with a similar request. And they're talking about, well, who's going to have the highest position? Uh, maybe they're thinking that if Jesus actually does die, who's going to carry on the mission? Uh, who's going to lead? Who's going to take charge? So these were in the front of their mind. Now, Jesus, of course, gives them instruction, correct their, their thinking, and we're informed uh, that uh, the group uh, comes now to Capernaum in verse 33, that was the kind of center of ministry. But back up in verse 30, we find that Jesus didn't want anybody to know about his travels now because they're going to the cross. He's closing down his ministry. He's going to spend this time, these last few months, with his disciples, teaching them, training them, and we're not going to see a whole lot of other activity going on during this time. But they do come back now to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys talking about? He knew what they were talking about, but now he wants to confront them about these things. And again, we find Jesus in a home, probably that of Peter and Andrew. Uh, that suggests to us, we haven't really discussed it much, but we see this over and over again. He goes into a home. When he goes into the home, he starts teaching. Uh, so this is a place out of the public eye. It's private. It's intimate. It's occupied by family and friends, and much of his personal teaching to disciples was in that atmosphere, that forum. Now, folks, let's remember that it's in our homes that much teaching is going on, either for good or for bad. And as a Christian, a parent or grandparent, our homes provide that forum that's just as important as the church for instructing our children in the things of the Lord and living that life before them. If they don't see that, uh, the church is not going to have as great an impact upon their life. Now, Jesus confronts the disciples about uh, their discussion, um, but they kind of remain silent. Uh, I wonder why. Well, probably because they were embarrassed. They really should have been embarrassed. So the Lord sits down with them. He calls them uh, to himself so he can correct their thinking. He takes a little child, perhaps the, the one of the children of Peter or Andrew, as an illustration and stands that child there so they can uh, view him. And then the child is apparently small enough for Jesus to take up into his arms and begin to teach them. And what he's teaching them through this whole situation is that a disciple is not supposed to be marked by selfish ambition, but service that will value others no matter what station in life they hold. Now, in verse 35, uh, he says, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, that turns upside down worldly thinking. 
the thinking of the natural man. Normally, we want to be first. We want to be recognized. We want to be best. We want to be on top. We want to look out for ourselves. We want to take care of ourselves. We live by that me first attitude. We're hardwired to it. But someone who follows Christ is willing to be last, to be servant to everyone else. And Jesus illustrates this by taking up that little child. And it's interesting that in the Aramaic language, this same word is used for a child and a servant. So those ideas come together. Now, children in those days were not paid attention to like they are in our day. They were the least significant members of society. They would be the perfect example of having no status, of being least in value, of being last and insignificant. And the Lord says a disciple of Christ needs to have that kind of an attitude, which of course requires humility. Now the verb here, to receive, means to welcome. And Jesus says, when you receive a little child who is really not valued very highly in the world, you're actually welcoming him, that child. You're paying attention to her. You're showing respect and treating them as a person, even though they're of a lowly status. And doing this is tantamount to receiving Jesus and the one who sent him, God the Father. A disciple of Christ then is willing to humbly serve the least respected in society as much as the most respected. And it's easy for us to forget this truth sometimes. Our sense of self-importance often uh, relates to how close we can come to uh, people we think are important. We can ignore people who are not on our list of significance, so to speak. We can disparage people who are poor, who are of a different ethnic background, or who are lower in status than we think we are. And such attitudes do not value others or put them first. They don't demonstrate a spirit of humility and service, a willingness to help others and share the gospel despite their social status. A true disciple is willing to be last in order to put others first. He or she is willing to serve at the expense of personal status because they value others above themselves. Now, the second thing that the Lord brings up to his disciples is based on an incident that John Uh, comes to the table with, so to speak. And that is that a true disciple is characterized by non-sectarian attitudes. Now, John uh, mentions a time where the disciples rebuke someone outside of their circle. Incidentally, this is the first and only time that he is the sole speaker in Mark's gospel. And it seems that he may have been convicted by what Jesus said. Was he wondering if the disciples should have done this? Or was he seeking Christ's approval uh, about what they had done? Well, 
Uh, we're not sure, but apparently uh, there was a time when they saw someone casting out demons in Christ's name, the Lord's name, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. <clears throat> was this another blow to what they perceived to be their special identity? A group of 12 men handpicked by Jesus and given his authority to minister, including casting out demons. And this person was outside the group. He was not one who follows us. And furthermore, he's using Jesus' name to do this, and uh, they're perhaps assuming that he didn't have any authority to do that. So they tell him to quit. And furthermore, he's successful in what he's doing. He's actually casting out demons, something the disciples had failed to do in the last event we looked at about the demonized boy. Now one commentator stated that all this was a severe blow to the disciples' sense of identity and undermines their special status. And how easy it is for us to look down on others who are not in our group of our ilk, as good as our family, uh, that they're not in our denomination, and the list goes on and on. So what does Jesus have to say about all this? Well, his instruction is given in verses 39 to 41. And uh, he says, don't forbid such a person. And he gives some reasons why. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, verse 39, Jesus says, do not forbid him for, and then verse 44, and verse 41, four. So three ideas here. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. All right, so first of all, if someone is doing a good work in Jesus' name, it is a demonstration of faith, not enmity. Now, in the book of Acts, is recorded another group of men who tried to cast out demons, and they used Jesus' name. But they weren't successful. As a matter of fact, the demons came out and kind of pulverized these fellows. They were using his name as a formula or an incantation mimicking the apostles, but they weren't doing it in faith. Now, this man was calling upon the person and the authority of Jesus, and he was successful in what he was doing. So we must assume he was exercising belief in Christ, even though he wasn't among the twelve. The second thing Jesus says here in verse 40, uh, for he who is not against us is on our side. So if someone is not actively against the Lord Jesus, then he considers him to be on his side. Now, opposition was mounting against Jesus. It was rapidly coming to a head. Uh, it was going to see its fruition when they get to Jerusalem. So it must have been refreshing for him to hear about this incident of someone who was friendly toward him, who was not opposing his work in ministry, who was actually sharing in it by what he was doing. Then thirdly, we see in verse 41, the smallest deeds that are done in Christ's name will not go unrewarded. 
And he mentions here giving somebody um, uh, a cup of water in Christ's name because you belong to Christ and you will not your, uh, lose your reward for doing that. So uh, this wasn't a, a huge work. This wasn't like casting out demons, but it's something that would have been appreciated in that dry and arid and hot climate. It was a hospitable deed. You'd be expected to do that kind of thing. But if you do it in Jesus' name and you do it for his sake and the extension of his ministry, the Lord says that even though it seems to be very insignificant, uh, he's aware of it, he knows about it, and he tracks those kind of things, and it's not going to be forgotten. So this outsider doing a good work in Christ's name, he's going to receive his reward as well. So again, we need to guard against this sectarian spirit that can crop up even in the church. I know good Christians are serving the Lord even though they're not Baptists. We agree on all the major doctrines necessary for salvation and sanctification. We may not agree on some of the minor points, but we do not censor each other over these things. Neither can there be a sense of pride or superiority in the area of spiritual gifts, uh, positions of service, differences of background, and things of that nature. There exists within the church this diversity uh, within the unity, and we need to accept that and work with that in the local church. Now, the third thing that Jesus uh, speaks about here has to do with uh, separation from sin. And we find that as he brings up this topic, that a, a, a true disciple is characterized by radical separation from sinful behavior. In verse 42, uh, he talks about causing a little one uh, to stumble. So first of all, a disciple of Christ does not cause others to stumble. He doesn't cause them to fall into sin. Uh, who are these little ones? Well, it would be easy to go back to uh, verse 38 and uh, uh, apply it to little children. But really, it probably uh, can be expanded to be greater than that. Everybody who's come to the Lord Jesus Christ is at first like a little child, like a babe. They come to him confessing their sin. Uh, they're humbled before him as they receive him as their Savior. And I think that we could probably say that anybody who's in the family of God at some time or other has been a little child. Perhaps they're still immature uh, and not growing very much, but we certainly don't want to do something that would cause the, the, the growth to stumble. And there's great danger in causing one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Now that particular word uh, is where we uh, derive the English term scandal. So to scandalize that person. Uh, and this alludes to one who causes a failure on the part of others, who trips or disables another's discipleship. And so that suggests causing someone to fall into sin or even fall away from the faith. 
So the life of a disciple uh, is supposed to encourage and build up others, not tear them down, not cause them to have a problem, not cause them to sin or lose their faith. And the Lord gives a very graphic illustration of what uh, that person, uh, what, what should happen to him instead of this. He goes on to say, it'd be better off for him to uh, tie a millstone around his neck and be cast into the sea. So that's pretty graphic there. Uh, That's pretty radical. And uh, uh, the word millstone there is alluding to a grinding stone that was large enough to be pulled by a donkey. So it's huge. And if you were tied to that, uh, you would be a goner. It would take no time at all for you to drop to the bottom of the sea. So causing others to stumble in their discipleship is serious business in the eyes of the Lord. And from there, he goes on to talk about uh, a disciple's own um, vision of his uh, relationship to sinfulness in verses 43 to 48. And a disciple of Christ severs himself from his own sin. He takes a radical view against it. Now, of course, if Jesus goes down through here and he says it's better to cut your hand or your foot off or your eye to be poked out, he's speaking figuratively to bring out uh, the point that he's trying to make here. He doesn't mean we literally do that. Uh, He's using this language to express this radical kind of attitude that you'd be better off cutting off your hand if you can't control it and it keeps making you sin rather than uh, with both hands uh, going into eternal life and it's not going to be eternal life, it's going to be eternal death. So the idea here of going into life means eternal life. If uh, you don't have this attitude towards sin, well, you're going to end up in a different place. Um, uh, One commentator wrote, whatever in one's life tempts one to be untrue to God must be discarded promptly and decisively, even as a surgeon amputates uh, a hand or a leg in order to save a life. So that's kind of the idea here. So our willingness to sever ourselves from sinful thoughts and deeds marks us out as true disciples. We don't say, I'm a sinner, so I sin. We say, I'm a saved sinner, so I don't have to sin. That's the attitude God wants us to take towards uh, these temptations that come in our life. And any other attitude indicates that one is really lacking true discipleship. So keeping your two hands, so to speak, your two feet, your two eyes at all costs indicates an attitude of unwillingness to suffer and letting go of sinful behavior. It shows one's not willing to deny himself the pleasures of sin that only last for a season to take up his cross of suffering to follow Christ. Now, the result of the wrong kind of attitude is is severe and it has eternal consequences. And Jesus mentions here being cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The word for hell here is the true one. 
in our New Testament, there is the word Hades, often translated in the KJV as hell, but also the word Gehenna, that's the word that's used here. And this was a valley outside of Jerusalem where the Jews who lived there would dispose of all their garbage, kind of like uh, over at Waterloo, Uh, You have Seneca Meadows, all the garbage goes there. Uh, The difference is, back then, uh, they couldn't uh, make something good out of it. They would burn it all. And uh, all kinds of garbage, including human refuse, would be placed in this place. It was a very disgusting uh, uh, dump. And there was always a fire going because they burned it. And in such places, the worms are feeding upon and contributing to the decay. Uh, They would be present as well. So it came to be a symbol of hell to the Jewish people. That this is what eternal death is going to be like. A constant fire, a constant decaying symbolized by the worms. In the Bible, fire is a biblical symbol of judgment, worms of decay and destruction. So hell is the final destination of those who are unwilling to follow Christ to be his disciple through faith in his sacrifice on the cross for sin. So those who recognize the eternal Price that Jesus paid for their sin to be forgiven that should create in them a desire to radically separate that which sends you to hell, and that is a sinful lifestyle. Now, can we do that perfectly? Probably not, but our attitude is we're going to trust the Lord in the Spirit to keep us from sin, and when we find ourselves in it, we seek the Lord's forgiveness immediately. Now, the last thing that Jesus talks about here, and it's likely that Mark brought these last two things together to include them here uh, as extensions of his teaching about discipleship. And here we have uh, those sayings again about salt that he used as uh, figures to describe something. And there are two remarks here showing us that a true disciple of Christ is seasoned with salt. And first of all, verse 49. This is kind of a difficult verse. If you're, um, excuse me, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Now this seemed to be portraying one idea and verse 50, another idea. So let's try to figure this out because there's a whole lot of ideas as to what this means. If we had time, we would go back to Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13, and we would see there that all the Old Testament sacrifices were salted. And this verse mentions a covenant of salt, uh, a kind of bringing the, the sacrificer and the sacrifice together. And all those Old Testament sacrifices uh, were related to salt. And when the sacrifice was put on the altar, you know it was burned up with uh, fire, utterly consumed to God as an act of worship and an emblem of the worshiper's consecration. So it may be best interpreted 
as an indication of Christ's disciples being dedicated to him and taking up the cost of discipleship through fiery trials and difficulties and persecution and opposition, uh, the idea of your dedication to the Lord. Another commentator said, in this context, it speaks of one who follows Jesus as totally dedicated to God's service and warns that such dedication will inevitably be costly in terms of personal suffering. And Jesus has been teaching this uh, through his own cross that he's about to take up. And the same thing is going to be expected of his disciples. So it brings out this idea of our consecration to the Lord, and that involves our willingness to take whatever he, he brings into our life for our growth, our increase in faith, and some of those things are difficult. Then we come to verse 50, where the Lord says, Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So disciples are to be salty. They're to have salt in themselves. Well, what does that mean? There's basically two uses or qualities of salt. I'm sure that probably everybody here has um, a container of salt on your dining room table or you use it for your meals. Salt then has the purpose of flavoring or seasoning. It makes uh, certain foods taste a little bit better. And so a disciple has this quality of salt uh, of seasoning, of flavor, and that kind of brings to my mind that this type of a person gives flavor to the church. His or her demeanor makes the church a better place. He's helpful, kind, maintains peace in the assembly. He's flavoring it with um, good attitudes and behavior. And thinking back to the disciples who squabbled about who was going to be the greatest well, they were being testy rather than salty. And uh, they were creating an atmosphere of disharmony rather than peace. And they needed to work together and come together as disciples of Christ. And then as they go out, and uh, they're, they're the pillars of the church. So there's that concept of being salty. Then we have the idea of preservation. You know that salt was used, still used in some cases, to preserve items from corruption. If you rub it into perishable things like meat, it keeps it from rotting for a period of time. It holds corruption in check. It enhances freshness and wholesomeness uh, while hindering the spoilage. As Jesus has illustrated earlier, a disciple holds the corruption of sin in check, both in his life and that of others. And in this way, really, peace is maintained in the church and really out there in the world. In another place, Jesus says, we're the light of the world and we're the salt of the earth. So we're a preserving influence within the church and out there in the world as well. So as Christ's modern disciples, we are to be characterized by these qualities. Are you humbly serving Christ? highly esteeming and valuing others in ministry? 
Do you view others as more important, more significant than yourself? That's what a disciple's like. Are you censorious of others who are not in your particular group? Uh, Even though they may be serving the Lord as well, do you have a sense of superiority or cliquishness, even in a a church uh, situation? What's your attitude towards sinful behavior? Is it as radical as what Jesus is teaching here, that you're better off cutting off a part of your body that you seem to not be able to bring under control? And do you have salt in yourself? Are you consecrated to Christ to the point of being willing to suffer the things that he suffered for you? Are you a member of his community of disciples that will live in such a way that you'll not impede the growth of others, that you'll create an atmosphere of peace within the church and keep it pure from all that the world would try to use to corrupt and destroy it? So let's keep these things in mind today as we approach the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, again, we ask for your forgiveness where we might have failed you. Lord, realize that from time to time, these kind of attitudes and thoughts and actions may creep into our lives. Help us, Lord, to realize when they do and help us, Lord, to deal with them uh, in a severe and radical way, even as you taught in this section of your word. As we come before your table, Lord, help us to be thoughtful of these things and be thankful for what Christ has done to uh, redeem us and deliver us from sinful behavior. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.